Real Fun DC. Hospitality and a little bit of sass are always on the menu. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis. I want to thank you so much for joining me. If it's your first time checking in, I'm not sure why. I've been on for over three and a half years, but let me give you a little background about who I am and what I do. So I've been covering primarily the D.C. food and wine scene for the last 18 years. Uh, You probably hear my husband and I every Sunday, or at least you should, on Foodie and the Beast, which is on 1500. We are D.C.'s only food and wine variety show, and we have been on for 13 years. You may also hear me on WTOP Radio, where I do regular roundups and food trends and all sorts of fun reporting on what's happening locally. Of course, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And lastly, where it all began, the list are you on it.com, the online e-zine that blasts out to over 40,000 subscribers that doesn't sell, it just tells everything happening in the DC food, wine, and hospitality scene. Now, After being at the beach for a week and eating out legit every single night, I'm really kind of relishing just kind of cooking at home. And there is just so much fabulous summer produce out there, whether you go to a farmer's market or a great local market like the new Dawson's downtown or in Rockville. Of course, I have a great relationship with the Central Farm Market people. There's always amazing things there. And I have to be honest, I have like a thousand plus cookbooks in my house. I am a bit of a collector. Uh, Cookbooks and vintage glass. Both of those are my things. Um, But and shoes and purses. But staying on topic here. Uh, But um, uh, lately, even though I have all these great cookbooks, I'm kind of referring to New York Times cooking. That recipe section is amazing. And I just want to tell you some of the things I'm like constantly cooking. So first of all, there is this country panzanella salad with watermelon dressing, and it is scrumptious. I'm making it on repeat. Uh, Also a lemony farro and orzo salad uh, with goat cheese. And um, I would never have thought to put orzo and farro together, but the two textures are delicious. I also been making a white bean caprese salad, which is a total no brainer until you read it and you're like, oh, this is brilliant. Making it all summer long. And then lastly, just last night, I made a BLT pasta, which is bacon, lettuce and tomato pasta, but I had corn and I added corn and um, the lettuce is arugula. And with big, thick pasta, fresh cut pasta, it just made the most delicious summertime meal. So uh, you can tell I like tomatoes and you can tell I like cheese and I will put corn in almost anything in the summer uh, and probably watermelon. All those things are on my table as long as it's at my house all summer long. So there are some great ideas for you. Uh, if you're looking to go pack a picnic, check out the list com. We have an entire roundup of places that are looking to fill your basket. Uh, some great openings are happening, especially bakeries in the D.C. area. Levon just opened up their second store in Bethesda. And if you haven't tried those gooey, ooey, sweet and delicious, they're sort of cakey and cookie cookies. Um, now you have more opportunities. And Golden Flower is a new bakery that is just opening its doors as well. All that and more is on the list. Are you on it.com? Okay, let's get on with the show. When I found out about Dr. Travis Carnot and all the exciting discoveries at historic St. Mary City, which includes the recently discovered St. Mary's Fort and all these really cool artifacts that was all recovered during excavations. I personally am 
fascinated by excavations and what can be found beneath the ground. Uh, he's going to tell us all about it and also what else to do in this area because a lot of people are stay taking staycations and this is an excellent place to do so. But first, Mark Booker is back. You know him for uh, his medium rare restaurants around the DC metro area, but he's also behind Feed the Fridge. Now I've had him on, I think all my shows, quite a few times, but more recently during the pandemic, he created Feed the Fridge and it's this DC-based program that's to turning food insecurity into meal security. Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you. It's always good to catch up. So let's start with Feed the Fridge. For those, I mean, so you've always done really interesting promos uh, pre-pandemic, um, you know, like sending food to moms on Mother's Day or seniors who, you know, can't be with their families, um, your turkeys, like you always do this turkey fry, like you're always doing ways to engage with the community, um, always. And now we had the pandemic. I know we're still sort of in it, but I'm hoping we're out of it. Um, you developed Feed the Fridge. How did that come together? Well, first off, all roads lead to you because Feed the Fridge likely wouldn't be here today if you hadn't connected the dots between Debbie Shore and me. Oh, I'll take it. Okay, I'll take full credit. Way back, okay? <laughs> yes. So that would, after we did our first show, after we did our show in the pandemic, uh, she reached out to you and how to get to me and you connected us and Debbie sure is obviously of share our strength, no kid hungry. Right. Um, and they were one of our first donors. I mean, out of that, because of you, all roads lead to you. So I love that. You've solved hunger at DC. Thank you. Oh, well, uh, listen, I am Debbie Shore is one of my favorite people and I sincerely hope, listen, Jose Andre, as we all know, just got a little chunk of change. Thanks to Jeff Bezos. And, um, I'm really hoping that not only they share he, some. Well, what I hope he does, and this is my personal opinion, but like, look, he knows how to feed people too. And his comp, uh, his organization, uh, World Central Kitchen, really is about disaster relief feeding, which right. we need, right. obviously. But I'm hoping he takes some of that money to dedicate it to eradicating food hunger in our country. Because the fact that, I, I, you know how I feel about this. Yeah, like, no, it, he, it, it's a crime. He was, he was my first call. He was my first call when I came, I had the idea of Feed the Fridge. Uh, mm -hmm. So, I mean, look, I mean, food insecurity is just a fancy way of saying hungry. Uh, when I grew up, they used to call a place the dump. Now they call it the landfill. It's the same thing. We're just putting lipstick on a really ugly problem in this country, which mm -hmm. is hunger. Um, and more money has flowed towards food insecurity in 2019 and 2020 than ever has before. Mm -hmm. And even one of our own local food banks here, the largest in the area, put a study out saying hunger is getting worse, not better. So my question was, A, you've taken in all this money more than you ever have before, mm -hmm. and it's getting worse, not better. So something's not working. Right. There's no more people that are hungry. COVID did not make more people hungry. Mm -hmm. COVID showed us that there's a huge break in this bifurcated approach and social service approach to getting people food. So here's what I mean by that. We, during the pandemic, we were giving out meals um, at these food giveaways. We'd give them, they'd come pick up their boxes of produce and we'd give them steak dinners to take home and have dinner. Mm -hmm. When we would clean up from every single one of these events, we would see on the curb canned goods and gallons of milk. People would leave them behind mm -hmm. every time. And 
I started asking the question going, what, what's going on with all this stuff? And if you remember back when we were in elementary school, the teacher said, hey, we're doing a food drive for the local food kitchen. Bring us your non-perishable items and we right. give them to the food pantry, right? 86% mm -hmm. of those living at or below the poverty line don't have a can opener. So they can't wow. even open the cans. So my first thing is, let's solve that. Let's get them can openers. Right. So Feed the Fridge has acquired 9,000 can openers that we're going to be providing to all the food banks in this area free to give away with the canned goods. So we're solving something, right? We're not just- you know, Can I just interject it. here? I mean, that is so mind-blowing to me, but it really shows the disconnect, right? It's so nice to sit here and say, um, I'm donating can you know fleets of canned goods because I want to help feed makes people. you feel good but not asking makes you feel good but not asking the people who need the food what, what they need that's amazing I'm my mind is totally blown so I'll, I'll take it one step further so uh -huh. we then which we started seeing all these produce boxes and dairy boxes and the the dairy boxes the USDA would give thirty seven dollars for Montgomery County, Maryland, or, or DC, or anyone to give out these dairy boxes. Mm -hmm. Quart of cottage cheese, a gallon of milk, two and a half pounds of cheese, two vegetables, and a dozen eggs. Mm -hmm. And we would we would leave these sites where they're giving they're giving these boxes out in the in the heat of summer. And on the sidewalk are the gallons of milk and the cottage cheese. And we're like, well, what's it? A, it's too heavy to carry home. B, it's not refrigerated. So so then we start thinking more and more, and we start asking more questions. And you know what one thing someone living out or below the poverty line can't afford besides food? Cookware. How expensive mm -hmm. is cookware? Think mm -hmm. about it. Cafflon all that. It could be $100 a pan. The cheap stuff is $20 or $30 a pan, even on Amazon. And they sell it in sets. And you got to buy $50, $60, $70. You got to have a credit card. So then we start contacting Salvation Army, Goodwill, Green Drop. And we're trying to find as much cookware as we can. There's mm -hmm. none. Because people, when they move, the cookware moves with them. They pack right. it up and they bring it house to house because right. it's a family thing. So th there's no cookware available. So I'm like, okay. So what we're doing this fall is we're working with restaurant tours like Rasika and like Kava, and mm -hmm. we're doing meal kits. Ingredients, all the cookware needed to make the meal, mm. all the seasonings and spices. At the end of a certain number of weeks, baking, broiling, steaming, frying, you're going to have all the cookware and all the utensils to stock your kitchen free. Wow. And so, and, and with the meal kits are instructions and Food Network's doing 21 minute videos, how to cook it, mm -hmm. how to repurpose the leftovers and how to go out and shop for the ingredients using Snap or your own cash to get value and store it. So, right. you know, you can give the person a fish or teach them how to fish. I do believe most people, like you said at the beginning of the show, I think most people really like and enjoy cooking. I, I don't know any parent who wouldn't love to cook for their children. And I don't know any child who wouldn't love to cook for their parents. They mm -hmm. just don't have the tools to do it. That's why we cooked, we, last year we cooked 1200 turkeys at Nats Park because there are lots of free turkeys given up but no one has a roasting pan right. for $100. Well, not only um, that, you gotta have an oven that can accommodate it. And, and, and listen, I, one of the things I think you know, and you and I have heard this over the years, um, if you're below the poverty level and somebody gives you a box of vegetables and you have not had access to fresh vegetables before, I mean, we're so privileged. Do you know what I mean? Like we're so, we're yeah. so privileged by what we have. It makes me like tear up. 
but if you don't know, how are you supposed to use it? And how are you supposed to share it? Like, you know, if you give, you know, kale or cauliflower or broccoli, turnips. you know, huh? Turnips. Turnip, right. Okay. Just if you give these. I don't even know how to cook a turnip. Right. But you're going to take the time to find out. But if it comes no, in I'm a box. Read. I'm going I'm to, right. Right. So that's my point. So, like, so, how do we, I, so like, I remember the farmer's markets, um, you know, try, doing these cooking demonstrations. I mean, there's, there's all these organizations that are doing tons of outreach. The question is, is how do we, everybody's doing good work. There's so much good work being done. So that sort of brings us to why I brought you on today, because now you're making partnerships. Right. So what, just touching base on your produce thing, and you hit the, mm -hmm. Nikki, that's a nail right on the head. So we're getting calls now from food banks who have pallets of vegetables, pallets of frozen Italian vegetables. And they have no idea what to do with it. We say, you know what, we'll take them in. We go to our chef partners. In this case, we went to Design Cuisine, who's yeah. one of our partners. Love we them. turned nine pallets of frozen vegetables into 6,000 meals. Wow. Bolognese, chili, soup, stuffed pasta. Mm -hmm. We return those meals back to the food pantry free of charge. We feed the fridge paid for that. Great. They got it back free with the requirement that everyone who picks up a meal gets seven meals for a week. Okay. So we're taking those vegetables that are hard to figure out what to do with, or people don't know what to do with, and putting them into meals that solve a, a, a meal readily available by definition solves hunger. Right. So feed the fridge is spread out around the region. Our goal is no one should walk more than four blocks for a meal for a dignified meal. These are meals coming out of the best restaurants in Washington. Right. And we're buying these meals from these restaurants because restaurants- Right, I mean, that's that's the, the beauty of the program. Like I think there were, you know, uh, Eric Bruno Yang started a similar program, The Power of 10. Yep. I, I mean, it's not like Feed the Fridge, but the concept was because of the pandemic, because we needed to pay people and the restaurants can feed people, like this brilliant idea, like, oh, the restaurants can, feed people and we can pay them it it was without breaking a sweat for the restaurant without breaking a sweat a restaurant can make right. a thousand meals for tomorrow and not break a sweat right and do it better and less expensive than the government can period uh -huh. we've proven that so we buy the meals from restaurants we load them in their fridges every day uh -huh. and people come and get meals and right. families kids seniors care workers no signups no lists nothing other than you're hungry and need a meal Period. Now, yesterday was a, a one of those defining moments of the program where everything I dreamt about came together. Mm -hmm. I dreamt about a world where government will get partner with me to put food in their community. Mm -hmm. And Montgomery County, uh, Montgomery County's Food Council and the uh, and uh, and a few other groups in Montgomery County got together and said, we'll, we'll buy the meals. But we then said, Let's work with folks that are going through career changing programs. They want to be a chef. They want they dreams of opening up their own restaurant. They're going through training. They going through vocational school or they're they're they want to learn. They're going through a community kitchen to kind of refine their skills. We located those groups. We uh -huh. worked with them to come up with their meals. We uh -huh. buy the meals from them for this fridge, and then we we take I, I mentor them on how to start their own business and how to start their own restaurant. Okay, I just have it. to so it's full circle. I have I have to interrupt you just not last week's show two weeks ago i had tim banks on he is the culinary director at um, howard county community college 
and I'm going to put you two together because yeah. they are working on the program to, they're looking to end the staffing shortage by training people in the hospitality industry, local people, and not just putting them behind the stove because they yeah, recognize I mean, that the industry is bigger than just the chef. It, you know, that's right. there's a star well, in the I mean, movie, but there's lots this, of people who put the movie together. One, one of the most impactful negative things to happen to the Washington DC food scene was losing a culinary school, was oh, losing the academy, academy cuisine. Without a doubt. Um, we, we lost our farm system for talent. And well, not only that, I mean, interns, uh, without a doubt, but I don't want to get too far off track. So Mark, yeah. I, I want to talk just a tiny bit uh, about a statement you put out. Um, and, you know, it sort of goes into what I mentioned, uh, Tim Banks, you know, you talked about fair wages and uh, that the industry needs a change from the ground up, which, you know, I agree 150%. So what are you proposing? So look, I mean, the restaurant industry got a gift that they will never get again. In mm -hmm. a capitalist society with a democracy, our government handed out free money called PPP in mm -hmm. two rounds. Take that money and don't waste an opportunity. Don't go buy yourself a car. Don't go on vacation. Invest it in your business. Pay people a living wage. Understand that your employees are your most valuable asset. I do want to interrupt that though. I do think that for uh, non-restaurant people who love the restaurants, those numbers are very misleading. Like, you know, they put out what everybody got recently. And, you know, as we've discussed, restaurants are a house of cards. So while it may look like a restaurant group is doing very well, they're just, some people may just be making it. So that money may have saved their tushies, but, it doesn't mean there's a lot left over. Uh, no, that's true. Um, mm -hmm. I will tell you firsthand, I know people that took a lot of that money and went on big vacations and bought big things. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people use it to keep their restaurant going. It was, it's a mixed bag. Okay. Um, and some people that are, that are serious about it, you know, do things. But here, here's what my point is. Mm -hmm. If Nikki, if I said, give me a thousand dollars, I'm going to invest it for you. But in three years, there's a 50% chance of being zero. Would you do it? No, no. Right, that's the restaurant business. Right. And we have to fix that. The restaurant business is the largest private sector employer combined in the country, mm -hmm. right? By nature of everybody. And my example is, if you're gonna hire, if a dishwasher walks in your door and one person's $12 and one person's $20 an hour, 10 out of 10 people, nine out of 10, because I'm gonna hire the more expensive one, are gonna hire the $12 an hour dishwasher. Sure. And my point, my point is make the job too much to give out, make the job someone wants, not someone needs, you know, yeah. if we all hear the stories about the out of work actor who's a bartender or a server or the undocumented person who can't get a job anywhere else and they're di washing dishes. You know what? Give that undocumented person a path to citizenship and a path to management, change somebody's life by nature of hiring them. And well, that's sort language. of, isn't that sort of the allure of the industry that, you know, you can start at the bottom and make it to the top. I mean, that's what we sell, you know, uh, that's what we sell as industry advocates, right? I mean, it used to be, right. I believe it, it still be. should be, it should be. That's that, I that agree. narrative should not be a myth. 
it should be a should be. Um, Your lips to God's ears. I agree with you 100%. Path to management, path to citizenship. The best chefs in the world started out washing dishes. Of course. All right. I could sit here and like dig deep and go down this rabbit hole with you all day, but I can't because the show only goes on so long. So I adore you. I thank you for your time today. Please tell people how they can find out more about Feed the Fridge. Visit feedthefridge.org mm-hmm. and call Jose Andres to say share some money with Feed the Fridge. And give some money. Right, to good causes. Thank you so much. All right. It's Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC. Now back to Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Dr. Travis Pardo, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Nikki. Excellent. So tell me, Travis, how does one become an archaeologist or get into <laughs> digs? Like, what, how does somebody get into this stuff? Well, I think my mother would tell you I spent too much time playing in the dirt as a child. But uh-huh. uh, but really, you know, I think we all get into this by a love of of looking at our shared past and seeing how we can learn from history to to see what it can tell us about our world today. It also helps when you really like to find uh, cool artifacts that haven't seen the light of day for hundreds of years. Well, so can we give people sort of an idea? Because to me, I think when people think of archaeology, archaeological digs, pardon me, Um, you know, they think of like Pompeii, right? Or, you know, these finds under the ground. Do you know what I mean? But Mm -hmm. I, there's sort of this, well, maybe it's just me, but like, how do things disappear? How do things just get covered with, like, how do people not know things are disappearing? What what (laughs) happens? I mean, it's a, it's a great question, and and the the short answer is time. You know that mm-hmm. that it, it if you look at a, a you know a house that's been uh, abandoned for a long period of time, you start to see the vines growing up over it. You start to see the the dilapidation that really starts to take effect. And mm-hmm. as organic material, wooden structures, which is predominantly what people built in this part of the world in the uh, in the colonial period in particular, um, but even in the pre-colonial pe- uh, period, native peoples were building out of out of wood uh, and and reeds and and uh, and organic materials. Uh, over time, organic materials, if not maintained, tend to decompose. They fall apart, and you see these these sort of piles of rubble start to form. And as leaves and uh, wind carries uh, dust and and uh, other types of organic material, uh, grasses, etc., start to build up and they decompose and that forms soil. And over time, things get covered up. And if there aren't people around who remember things and share those stories with their mm-hmm. their children and their children's children, um, then those those places start to become a memory and then then are forgotten. Isn't that fast? I mean, I'm totally fascinated by that. And so you're with, you're the director of research and collections for historic St. Mary's City. How'd you get the gig? I mean, how does that come to fruition? Well, as a, as an undergraduate student at uh, the College of William and Mary, I was sort of exposed to history, you know, with Colonial mm-hmm. Williamsburg right outside my window, and mm-hmm. uh, I I took an anthropology class and and spent a day on an archaeological dig in a in the dismal swamp in Virginia, which is 
exactly what it sounds like. And uh, <laughs> but just one day of of searching in the soil for for ancient artifacts was one of those things that kind of sparked my interest. And uh, I ended up enrolling in a course at uh, historic Jamestown. And so I did a, a, a long summer program there. It's called a field school at Jamestown and, and just really fell in love with it. Um, in, in truth, it was the second day that I was out there as I was excavating, sifting through the soil, I found a, a small iron key uh, you know, it would have opened a, a small box or, or some sort of padlock. And it was you know, pretty much identical to the, the car keys that I had in my pocket, but it was 400 years old and nobody had seen it since its owner had lost it that long ago. And there was something about that connection through time that just made me fall in love. Which I, it's admirable that you took your passion and made it your profession because not everybody can do that. Um, so let's talk about what you discovered. Were you looking to discover this? How did this, how did this discovery of uh, the St. Mary's Fort come to be? Well, it, it actually has a connection to that Jamestown story. You know, as an undergraduate student spending time at the site, the first permanent English settlement in, uh, in North America at Jamestown, um, the, the, the story of James Fort and these, these colonists coming here uh, you know, in what could be called an invasion of a territory that had been occupied for, for millennia by native peoples and constructing a fort and trying to uh, you know, figure out what their, their colony was going to be, what kind of world they were going to, to, to try and construct for themselves and the relationships often violent and, and combative and, and tenuous between uh, the native peoples and the, the colonists. There's something about that story that really energized people and got people fascinated by history. And so when I came to historic St. Mary City, a place where we've been doing archeology span for over five decades, and uh, that work has revealed such a wealth of information about the 17th century capital of Maryland, because St. Mary City was the capital before it was moved up to Annapolis or what would become Annapolis in 1695. Mm -hmm. And so all of this work had, had revealed a, a city that had been buried over time, yet the one piece that had never been discovered uh, from this story was the site of St. Mary's Fort, the first fort that was constructed by the, the initial 150 or so colonists who arrived on the shores of what they called uh, eventually the St. Mary's River in March mm -hmm. of 1634. And so the fact that we didn't have that, that kind of anchor site, the, the moment where the colony really began uh, was something that fascinated me. And so I was really in, uh, invested in trying to, to locate it. But, okay, so... How do you locate it? I mean, I know you're using your archeological skills and that word does get totally messed up in my mouth, but how do you go about finding it? You have an idea where it is. I assume you read books or, I mean, how do you figure that part out? Yeah, archaeology tends to use a combination of methods to do just about everything. And in this case, we, we started with the historical documents. There was a, a colonial document, a single record that gave a description of what the fort might have looked like. And it's a letter that was written by Maryland's first governor, Governor Leonard Calvert, to one of his friends back in England. And okay. it was dated to May 30th, 1634. And he, he describes all kinds of boring material in this letter, but he gets to the point where they have arrived in Maryland and he says, we walked one half mile inland and there we built our fort, a palisado. So we know it's a palisaded fort, which means sort of a, a walls built of, of timbers that have had their branches removed, stacked mm -hmm. side by side in a trench to form a tall wall. Um, he describes it as a 120 yard square that had four bastions or sort of circular protrusions on the corners where you could mount cannon. And so we had a rough idea of the size, the shape, and we knew it was half a mile inland from the river. 
And so once we, with that data in mind, uh, we then turned to scientific instrumentation. Um, we, we actually applied for a grant from the Maryland Historical Trust, and we used the funds from that grant to hire a geophysicist, a man named Dr. Timothy Horsley, uh, who uses things like radar and uh, electrical resistivity and all kinds of, of uh, physics and, and uh, hard sciences uh, and instrumentation to look below the ground using these, this kind of signaling without actually having to do a lot of excavation. It's the same sort of technology that's used to locate utilities during construction work. You know, if you see spray paint. Well, I assume that was used, that's what was used recently, you know, regarding those harrowing stories about in Canada with the indigenous children and probably very soon stories breaking in the United States. Um, So it's the same sort of. Very, very similar. Yes, very similar technology. It's it's the kind of thing that you can use to, again, to look below the ground without having to do those excavations. Okay, so you find it. And then you get to start doing what I assume is the fun part, which is digging, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But, but it must be tedious. I'm so impatient. I, I love what you do, but I, I, I would just, I would ruin it. I would break it. <laughs> I mean, I would just, I would be like, just dig it up. I wouldn't have the patience to like brush and, and smooth away. And so how long did that all take? It, it takes an extraordinary amount of time. You do have to have a lot of patience as an archaeologist. And, and part of the reason we work so slowly is because the, the location of where artifacts are found matters more to us than the artifacts themselves. And so what I mean by that is if, if I were to find, if you told me, hey, I found uh, 100 pieces of a ceramic plate uh, scattered across this site. And I said, great, tell me where they came from. And you said, well, they came from, I don't know, that field out there. That tells me, okay, someone in that, at some point in that field broke a plate and it scattered all over the place. But if you tell me, well, I found them in this small little one by one foot uh, little pile over here, now I can say, okay, well, somebody broke, shattered a plate and it broke in one place. Um, What was somebody doing there? Why were they, why did they have a plate? Why did they have a pot or any other sort of artifact? And this becomes even more pertinent when you're talking about things uh, like, coins or projectile points or things that, that really speak to human occupation on a, on a broad scale. And so if I know exactly where they came from on a site, I can start to reconstruct the behavior that, that led those objects to end up there. Because uh, mm-hmm. that's what we're doing is we're trying to reconstruct like detectives, uh, what happened in the past based off of clues from things that were broken or things that were lost, uh, things that were forgotten. And so we need to know precisely where those things came from. So we have to work very, very slowly and carefully so that we're not uh, destroying that, that important contextual information. That's, well, all that makes very much sense because you are in essence a storyteller. You're collecting the data and then explaining it to everyone. Um, so what were the things that you found and how, how can I as a, a visitor experience what you found? Absolutely. So we've been working out at the site of St. Mary's Fort since uh, July of 2020. We, we got back out into the field in the midst of the pandemic with some, some very rigid uh, safety protocols in place, social distancing, masking and the like. And uh, with the support of the governor's office with some funding, uh, we've been doing some excavations so now for about a year. And uh, so far, we're finding some really fascinating material culture, what, what I would call sort of the, the implements of colonialism. We have objects representing really the goals of the, the Maryland colonists, which were economic enterprise or trade and exchange. And we have that in the form of trade goods like glass beads, 
um, uh, copper artifacts that were produced over in Europe and brought over for trade with native peoples, um, trying mm -hmm. to acquire furs, um, food, information, and the like. Uh, we have religious artifacts, which speak to the colonial goal of trying to Christianize native peoples. Um, so we have objects uh, such as a, a saint's medal, a, a little medal depicting five of the saints who were uh, canonized in 1622 by Pope Gregory the 15th. We have this small little medal that, that uh, uh, commemorates that event. Uh, and then we also have military objects, which speak again to that colonial presence, these individuals coming over to acquire land, whether through diplomacy or through uh, more combative means if necessary. So we have gun parts from 17th century muskets. We have hundreds of pieces of lead musket shot that would have been used uh, as ammunition and uh, things like gun flints that would have provided the spark to, uh, to fire those, those weapons. And so we're really seeing that, that kind of colonial enterprise expressed in the artifacts that we find. And if I'm to come to the, so if I'm coming to Historic St. Mary's, mm -hmm. um, how am I seeing this? Where am I going? What am I doing? How do I get to either, do I get to watch or is there people to talk? Like, give me a little bit about the experience. Absolutely. So Historic St. Mary's City is a, a living history museum, meaning we have, uh, we're have we an outdoor space, so we're very COVID friendly. Um, so it's a great place to come with, with friends and family. We've got miles of, of paths, paved paths, and also uh, three and a half miles of hiking trails. We've got a few miles of shoreline, so there's water access available if you want to come walk along the water. Uh, it's a great place to visit uh, with, with kids. We bring have a lot of families that come out and see our, our we have reconstructed historical structures, uh, reconstructed pre-colonial structures, uh, staff who are in uh, costumed interpreters who will talk to you about what life was like during this period. But if you're interested in the archeology, span uh, our excavation site is open to the public. Um, the museum is open Wednesday through Sunday. Uh, during the, the summer. Our dig team is out there Wednesday through Friday during those open hours. We're also out Tuesday, Monday and Tuesday, but the museum's closed at that time. Um, mm -hmm. But while, while the museum is open, you're welcome to come out to the excavation site uh, and, and see what we're finding in real time. We also offer two tours daily that are called the Changing Landscapes Tour. We'll have a guided experience that will tell you a lot about the history of the site leading up to the arrival of the European colonists and then sort of what happened in the relationships between the colonists and the native peoples in that early period and after. During that tour, you'll get to speak with our, our archaeological team and, and see what's coming out in real time, what we found that day. So it's a, a really cool opportunity to see the, the discoveries happening as they're happening. Oh, it, I mean, it's, it sounds very exciting. So I'm just sort of curious for you, what was, what's been the most exciting part? I mean, I'm sure daily things pop up and you're like, oh, that's cool. But <laughs> Give me like two or three things that came out that either surprised you or you're like, that's what I wanted to find. What what Absolutely. wowed you the most so far? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about the discovery was we were a little surprised because the the historical record that I mentioned earlier, the, the letter from Governor Calvert described a, a big square fort with these four uh, bastions or, or outworks on the corner. And what we found didn't exactly look like that. It was smaller, it was rectangular, and it only had one bastion on one corner. And so there was some questions. Maybe, maybe he was exaggerating. I think he might have been, yeah. <laughs> so there we, you know, we had some questions though. Is this actually what we think it is? And so um, we were looking to the artifacts to guide us and looking to the archaeology. You know, the, the, the radar can tell, suggest that there's this big site there, but we needed to get in and find some things. And so mm -hmm. uh, last November, one of my crew members texted me with a photo of an object, a small silver disc, 
And when we got it cleaned up, we realized it was a King Charles silver shilling uh, mm. that was actually a, a coin that was struck at the Tower of London. And as I looked into this object and did some more research, I realized it had a maker's mark at the top of that object that was shaped uh, sort of like a little grid. It was a portcullis, like the gate on a castle. And that portcullis maker's mark was only used at the Tower of London in 1633 and 1634. And 1634 is the year that the colonists came to Maryland. So wow. finding that coin with the date, you know, pretty much the date right on there that we wanted was, uh, was it was like Christmas around here on that day. So I bet. I, listen, um, I don't get to go down these kinds of rabbit holes often in what I do, but it's been really uh, exciting and inspiring to talk to you. And I can't wait to come down to the site and see what you all are doing, because while it is not my profession nor my passion, I find it incredible incredibly interesting. So can you please tell everybody like where they can find you, how they can get there and uh, find you online, etc. Absolutely. So our, our museum's website is hsmcdigshistory.org. And there you'll find uh, maps, directions. We're, we're down on in Southern Maryland, sort of down near the uh, Patuxent River Naval Air Station. And so we're, we're a little I bit of a- I assume that far from St. Mary's college right no we're actually uh, st mary's college and and we are partner institutions we we share land we are right next okay. to each other so okay. yeah i've been there <laughs> it's a beautiful part of the world beautiful. so it's it's yeah. a little removed from the city but it's a great day a day trip we're about uh, an hour and a half south of dc about an hour 45 south of baltimore so it's a great mm -hmm. chance to come out see, get some sun uh you know see some see some river and uh, really have a great day excellent well uh dr travis farno thank you so much for joining me Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you again to my wonderful guests. Uh, Mark Booker and I can literally talk all day about industry and go down a variety of rabbit holes. But what he's doing with Feed the Fridge is really fascinating and incredible. Um, and I hope he continues to expand and continues to feed people because food insecurity is BS and people should not be going hungry in this country. And I mean, that's St. Mary's fort in historic St. Mary City is so cool. And I cannot wait to go out there and see what Dr. Travis Parno is doing. So I hope you do too. And I want to thank you all for joining me today on Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis on Real Fun DC. Follow me at nyccinellis.com. Everything you heard today is going to be on the list are you on it.com. If you subscribe, you'll get our newsletter and you'll never miss a bite. Be safe out there, everyone. Wear masks if you have to. If you haven't been vaccinated, I cannot help you. Get vaccinated and have a delicious week. Thanks. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Thanks for listening to Real Fun DC.